Today we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. And we will break in at verse 21. This Easter season, if you haven't noticed on your way out yet, there are little inviter cards. Which one am I on? Am I on the mic pack or the pulpit? Both. All right. Uh, we've got some invite cards reminding us that Jesus is risen and therefore we have true hope. It's got our Easter schedule on the back. On Easter Sunday, we'll have two services, 8.30 and 10.30. 8.30 and 10.30. No Sunday school, but we will have a sort of a fellowship, pastry, coffee hour in between, along with a photo opportunity set up for you and your family and guests down in the fellowship hall. So lots going on on Easter Sunday. On Good Friday, we have a service here, a special service at 7 o'clock. So we'd encourage you, one, to be here yourself, and two, you've got a couple weeks to invite friends and family and neighbors. We'd love it if you would take some cards as you go and, and hand them out like candy. Uh, I've handed out, I think, about 152 in the last week. And, uh, you know, just make it rain, Easter invites, and we'd love to see them here soon. So by now, hopefully you're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Would you hear with me the word of God? They pressed him to service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place of place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we ask in the moments to come that you would grant that your Holy Spirit would be moving and operative in our congregation. God, that if there's any who's far from you, that today would be the day they are brought near by your presence drawing them and through the saving faith offered to them at the cross of Calvary. God, we ask that Jesus would be glorified in the hearing and in the preaching of the word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've worked our way through the account of Jesus' suffering and rapid journey from the upper room at Passover to the cross on Golgotha's hill, we have seen Jesus fulfilling scripture at every turn, right? He is betrayed by Judas, which is prophesied in Scripture. He's abandoned by his disciples, which is prophesied in Scripture. And we've seen his silence before 
his accusers on the way to the cross, again prophesied in Scripture. In this text, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies intensifies, revealing what King Jesus endured on the cross took place right on schedule, exactly according to God's divine plan. You know, the cross is not a surprise to God. Jesus is not accidentally sacrificed at Calvary. The Old Testament gives us very specific instructions for how a sacrifice was to be made. They were to bring the firstborn lamb, the unblemished lamb. And now it is God intentionally, purposefully offering his sinless son for the sins of the world just as he prophesied, just as he predicted in the Old Testament. So what we see here unfolding, we would, we would be wrong to look at the cross of Christ and to think that, that God was surprised or, or that Jesus was like, oh, wow, I suddenly ended up on the cross. Sometimes we think of Jesus as a good moral teacher who was a martyr for his cause and that was the end of him. No, this is not a tragedy because he knows the resurrection is coming. The cross is the means of the coronation of Jesus as king. It's so counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to the world. But the way that Jesus is recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords is because he goes to the cross for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. One people of God, comprised of all the peoples of the world, inhabiting the renewed heavens and earth with King Jesus forever. And the way that Jesus is recognized for who he is as King of the Jews and King of Israel, notice in chapter 15, he's called King of the Jews in verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 26, and then King of Israel in verse 32. The way we recognize him as king is through his journey to an old rugged cross. His crown comes by way of his crucifixion. Because the cross is the only way people could be rescued and enter God's kingdom. And that has massive implications for us as the people of a king who is recognized as a king by going to the cross. We have likewise been called to take up our cross and follow him. So to serve Christ, the risen king, we too must carry his cross and point others to him. We must see that he's been crucified in the place of sinners and in fulfillment of scripture. And finally, we must believe in the one who did not save himself. We must believe in the one who did not save himself. First, we must carry his cross and point others to him. In verse 20, the soldiers lead Jesus out to crucify him. In John chapter 19 and verse 17, we learn that Jesus begins the trip to Calvary bearing his own cross. He reminds us of Isaac in Genesis 22, who is let the son of Abraham, the father, and they go up to the mount together where it is said that Isaac's going to be sacrificed and he carries his own wood to be the offering. So we know that Jesus is the greater Isaac, the son who doesn't just begin to carry his cross, but he completes the act of offering himself and is raised on the third day so that we can be rescued. But at some point on the way to Calvary, the Roman soldiers force Simon to bear Jesus' cross. Apparently the loss of blood and the repeated blows of scourging have so weakened Jesus' mangled body that he collapses under the weight of the cross. 
Simon, just some passerby from the countryside, is suddenly thrust into the greatest, most significant, and most pivotal story in the history of the world. I don't know why it is that they picked Simon. Perhaps while others are mocking and scoffing, Simon is somehow captivated by this one who is carrying his cross, gruesomely beaten and yet innocent. The Son of God is crucified so that the sinful sons and daughters of men may know him as king, and Simon is given a role, seemingly out of nowhere, given a critical role in getting Jesus to the cross so that we could be saved. Do you see it, church? This is a picture of what God is still doing wherever the gospel is proclaimed and wherever Christ is believed. God is taking people on the sidelines and he's preaching, he's declaring that Christ was crucified for them. And as people see through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus on his way to the cross for them. And they understand that he's going there for them. The Spirit of God takes them out of the crowd and He makes them participants in the story of God until He comes again. He gives you and me, He gives us, the people of God, North Rhode Baptist Church, He's given us a role to play. We're not just bystanders. He's taking us out of the crowd and He's given us the opportunity to bear the cross of Christ so that the world might know that He was crucified for them. As Edwards writes, Simon becomes the first person to follow the command to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Surely Simon had different plans for that fateful Friday. But knowing the cross that he carried is the cross that Jesus died upon. Though he bore the cross, Jesus took his place in dying, that, uh, dying for him. That changed him forever. Uh, apparently, based on the way that Mark words verse 21, apparently no one has any clue who this Simon guy is. He's Simon the Cyrene. Well, who's that? Well, you know him. Well, you don't know him, but you know his sons. Alexander and Rufus. You remember those guys, Alexander and Rufus? Oh, yeah, those guys. Do you see what's happening here? Simon, a nobody, a passerby, is enlisted in carrying the cross of Christ. And somehow this so changes his life that he has to tell his boys. Let me tell you what happened to me on the day that I carried the cross of my Savior up Golgotha's hill. And these two became men who were recognized in the church. Mark could just appeal to them as, oh yeah, Alexander and Rufus, the cross Simon carried should have been the cross upon which he died, but Jesus died instead, and that changed everything. Like Simon, for us to be, like, to, like Simon, we need to be pressed into the service of bearing Christ's cross until he comes again. And how do we bear his cross? We bear his cross by helping others hear and know and understand the gospel. We bear the cross by dying to our selfish ambitions and letting him change them, letting him alter our plans, repurpose our desires, and completely overhaul our plans and dreams for his glory rather than our own. Jesus doesn't take ambition out of the human heart. He repurposes ambition as something that is directed not toward our glory and our fame, but to the glory and the fame of Jesus who died for us. Like Simon, 
we bear the cross and find that the burden is light. Because it's Jesus who takes the scourging and the mocking and the beating and the nails and the agony and the alienation that we deserve. So like Simon, when we understand North Roanoke, what Jesus does for us on the cross, then we too should be a people who are telling our sons and our daughters and our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers what God has done on their behalf. We should become such champions for Christ that our sons and daughters either become people that the church knows by name or they become the people that influence someone that the church knows by name. Many of you here know the name Billy Graham. In the last 75 years, many were led to Christ by this American evangelist, Billy Graham. But if Billy Graham were here today and talking about himself, what he would want you to know about is not all the great things that he did for Jesus, but he would say, let me, let me tell you about the faithfulness of a guy named Mordecai Ham, who preached the gospel, and God, through the preaching of the gospel, came low and rescued me and made me one of his own. None of those people would have heard the gospel without the ministry of Mordecai Ham. And then... If we can interview Mordecai Ham and say, Mordecai, tell us about all great things that you did. Ham would want you to know about the preaching of a man named Billy Sunday. So if we can bring Billy Sunday up and say, well, Billy, tell us about how amazing you are. Billy Sunday would want you to know about the preaching of a man named D.L. Moody. Who started Moody Bible Institute, preached the gospel to thousands and saw thousands upon thousands Get saved. Just a, just a guy who worked in a shoe shop at the age of 17 years of age. And if Moody could stand here before you. And we say, Moody, tell us about yourself. Tell us, tell us what's so amazing about you. He'd say, there's nothing amazing, amazing about me. But I want you to know about a guy named Ed Kimball. Who in the world is Ed Kimball? He was my Sunday school teacher when I was 17 years old. And he was burdened for my life. And he came into the shoe shop and he took me into the basement and he shared the gospel with me and my life was changed. We can trace it all the way back to people like Simon who carried the cross of Christ and dared to tell somebody the difference that Jesus makes in a life. North Roanoke Baptist Church does not exist for the glory of North Roanoke Baptist Church. We exist for the glory of Christ, the risen King. God, for the glory of your Son, would you grant that the people gathered here would reach and raise up a generation of people to serve you as shining examples of your faithfulness? Denying themselves, taking up their cross for the glory of Christ and the good of all people from all nations. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Secondly, we must see Jesus crucified in the place of sinners. And in the fulfillment of scripture. The road to the cross culminates at Golgotha. Aiken says this would have been outside the city walls along a public highway. The Romans 
wanted to show you just how they, what they did to criminals, they, how they handled criminals. In both Roman and Jewish cultures and traditions, criminals were executed outside of the city limits. In Leviticus chapter 24, 14, we read this, Bring out of the camp the one who was cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let the congregation stone him. Sin had to be removed from the camp. They took the criminals and crucified them and stoned them outside the city. Jesus, of course, is no criminal. He's just treated like a criminal, so we don't have to be. Pilate could find no guilt in him. The Sanhedrin could not even obtain a consistent testimony against him. So Jesus offers himself, yes, as our Passover lamb, but also as our scapegoat. You remember the Day of Atonement, where one goat would be slaughtered for the price of sin, but then another goat, they would lay their hands upon the goat and symbolically transfer the sin of the people onto the goat, who would be sent outside the camp, because sin cannot remain where God's people are. There has to be purity, there has to be holiness, and something must be done with the sin. And so Christ offers himself as our Passover lamb and substitute, and also as the scapegoat who takes our sin outside the camp so that God can throw it as far away as east is from west. Golgotha means place of the skull. It's no accident that the word Calvary comes from the Latin word meaning scalp or bald head. Christ dies on that scalpy hill. He dies on that place that looks dead. It looks like a skull. It's no accident that he dies in the place that the world looks dead in order to make the world alive. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that the death and resurrection of Jesus is more than just about the salvation of individual sinners. It's actually about the salvation of the whole world. He writes this, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven... What is happening at the cross of Calvary is a remaking, not just of individual sinners into those who are saints, but the whole world is being remade in him. And when he comes again, that work will be complete. In verse 23, as the soldiers prepare Jesus' body for crucifixion, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. It's a primitive narcotic to dull the pain. David wrote of this moment centuries earlier in Psalm 69, verse 21. He says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. But notice in verse 23 that Jesus doesn't take it. I want you to lean in with me, church, and listen. Jesus refuses to deaden the severity of our sin by dulling the pain. Jesus would not console the consciences of his crucifiers by deadening the pain of bearing our sin and God's wrath against us. Church, he bore it all for us. Who are we to look to the cross of Christ and say that there's little sins that don't matter that much? I just fudged a little bit on my taxes. I just told a little white lie. I just got a little bit angry with my child. I just did a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not that big of a deal. Would to God that we would fix our eyes on the cross of Calvary and see Jesus refusing 
to dull the pain of our sin so that we could see what our sin costs Christ to reconcile us to a holy God. Then in verse 24, Mark writes this, these, these four little words, and they crucified him. That's it. The Son of God and the Creator of all things nailed to a cross of wood. The way back to God's good garden made possible because Jesus hangs on a tree where he knows the good of offering himself obediently to God and he knows the evil of bearing our own sin. He hangs on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that we might partake of him as the tree of our everlasting life. Crucifixion was reserved for non-Roman citizens who were slaves and violent criminals or prisoners of war. Jesus is crucified as though he's a criminal so that, it, he, so that we would not have to face everlasting punishment for our crimes against an everlasting God. Jesus is treated like a prisoner of war so that we can now go to war against sin and the flesh and Satan and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is treated like an alien, like a foreigner, like a stranger, like a non-citizen, so that we can be called citizens of heaven. Are you all here this morning? Amen. Crucifixion was an excruciating process. It was prolonged, it was painful, it was socially degrading. Cicero says this, crucifixion was the most cruel and horrifying punishment. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, the mere mention of them. That is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. But church... When you really understand what's happening at the cross, you'll never find that it is beneath you. No, we understand that the cross is for us. We understand that we were the ones who deserved the cross. We were slaves to sin and are now slaves to Christ. And that is true freedom. The freedom that we have found is not a freedom that comes from us, but a freedom that comes from belonging to God. And that was made possible by the cross of Christ. So we don't look at the cross and say, that's foolishness. We say, it's my salvation. We look at the cross and we sing of what happened there. We delight in it. We call it the wonderful cross. People look at the church and say, you're crazy. But the reason we're crazy for Jesus is because Jesus did there what we could not do for ourselves. He took the sin that was in verse 24, we read that the ones who crucified Jesus cast lots for his garments. This means that Jesus was crucified naked, perhaps with a loincloth remaining. Again, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. This time, Psalm 22, David's prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In other words, Jesus is stripped of his clothes and crucified so that we can be robed in his righteousness and ready at his return. In verse 25, we learn that Jesus was crucified at the third hour 
according to the Jewish reckoning of time. This means it was around 9 o'clock in the morning. And he was crucified with the mocking charge hung on the cross, as they did for many of the criminals. They would post the charges against you. And the charges against Jesus are the king of the Jews. In verse 27, he's crucified as though he is a criminal between two real criminals. The prophet Isaiah told us centuries before he would be numbered with the transgressors. Notice in verse 27 that Mark specifically says that the robbers are crucified on his right and on his left. Now, if we've been paying attention as we've been walking through the book of Mark, you'll remember the last time that we read about the right, well, the right and the left of Jesus was when. It was back when James and John said, Jesus, let us sit in your glory. Let us sit on your right and on your left. We want to have a share in your power and in your glory and in your goodness. We want to be a big deal. They didn't know what they were asking. Jesus says, you don't get what you're asking. And the next time we find somebody at the right and the left of Jesus, they are robbers on the right and left of Jesus being crucified. Yes, to be at the right and left hand of Jesus, to have a share in his glory. We've got to recognize that the king wins in an entirely different way. This is the glory of Jesus on display. He is the king they never conceived of, a king who wins by dying, a king who conquers through his own crucifixion. With his death, Jesus is waging war on behalf of God's kingdom. He's conquering his enemies and making a way for foreigners and aliens and strangers to the purposes of God. Those who were far away to suddenly be brought near. Which means, church, if we want to be at the right and the left of Jesus, if we want to be in the presence of Jesus, we don't come as those who deserve something from him. We come knowing that we were the robbers. We were the ones who were robbing Jesus of his glory. We were the glory hogs. We were the ones who deserved to die. And he came to die for us. So that we could know and worship him forever. As the super exalted and ever saving king. That Paul describes in Philippians 2. When he says he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. In the Greek, Paul invents a word. He super exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now verse 28 in, your, in Mark chapter 15. Your Bible might have brackets around it. The reason for those brackets is in the earliest manuscripts, that verse does not occur. And then in later manuscripts of Mark, it begins to show up. So whether it was there originally or it's not there originally is not a big deal because here's what you need to know. The point that it's making that Jesus is fulfilling scripture is exactly what Mark is showing us. Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. And that's good to know in your head, church. It's good to know that this didn't take Jesus by surprise. It's good to know that the Father is intentionally offering His Son on behalf of His people. But the question that you must wrestle with individually this morning is, am I one of those people? In order to be in the family of God, you've got to believe in the one who did not save Himself. In Psalm 22, verses 6-8, through 8, David predicts what we read in verses 29-32. through 32. 
David says this, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. In other words, Jesus is going to be mocked. He's going to be maligned by the people. When Simon passed by in verse 22, he is pressed into the service of Christ. But most of them just pass on by and hurl abuse at him, wag their heads at him, mocking the idea that he could ever destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Once again, Jesus is mocked like he's a pretender. Jesus, you said you would tear down the temple and rebuild it. Jesus, you said you're the Christ. You said you're the king of Israel. Do you notice the pattern going all the way back to the end of chapter 14? Jesus is accurately identified and then he's mocked. Jesus confesses that he's the divine son of God and then the Sanhedrin mock him and Peter denies him. Then he confesses that he's the king of the Jews before Pilate and the crowd calls for his crucifixion and the soldiers beat him and they mock him. And now at the time of his crucifixion, he's on the cross for goodness sake. He's already on the cross. What more is there to say? What more does mocking accomplish? And they still mock him. The mocking rejection of Jesus comes from every corner. It comes from the Jewish establishment. It comes from Rome. It comes from the crowds in the city. And even from people just passing by. The mocking voices merge into a larger chorus of scorn. Even the criminals at his right and left mock him. Jesus, you supposedly have great power. You supposedly save others. If you would only save yourself, Jesus... If you would just come down from the cross, they say it twice in verse 30 and in verse 32. Just come down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. This generation is still seeking a sign, aren't they? They want a savior who saves himself and then empowers us to save our own selves. They want a salvation that comes not by substitution, Jesus in my place, but by self-reliance. Jesus just is my good example. Look at all the good he did. He went to the cross and then he got down. And I can get out of my own jam. I can make my own way. I can be my own God. I can be my own person. But the cross of Christ and Jesus staying there demands a different verdict. You have to surrender your will to his will and belong to him forevermore. They want a salvation of self-reliance and self-help and self-fulfillment. Their mocking of Jesus assumes that the salvation of themselves is the greatest good. But Jesus shows us another way. They taunt him saying he saved himself. He, cannot, he saved others. He can't save himself. And ironically, once again, they're right. Because no one else will be saved if Jesus saves himself. Jesus has the power to save himself. He can get down off the cross. But if he decides to get down off the cross and flex his divine muscle and show who he is, then no one else will be saved. If Jesus gives in to the temptation here to get down, then what good would our seeing and believing of him be? It would be of no good. We would be dead in our trespasses and sin. We would be far from the purposes and the plan of God. The only way we can be rescued is if Jesus stayed. Faith in a Jesus who saves himself would be futile. It would be useless. Faith, therefore, that does not put Jesus Christ crucified for your sins 
at the center is not saving faith. But, but pastor, I did a lot of good stuff. I, the Salvation Army ringers were out there at Christmas, and every year I put, I didn't just put change in, I, I put a check in the bucket. I gave to the American Cancer Society, I gave the United Way, I helped my neighbor, I rolled her trash back, I mowed her lawn, I did all sorts of good stuff, but you did not run to Jesus who died for your sinful, wretched heart. There's nothing that man could do to atone for his sin, so Christ came to do it. Praise God. Praise God. This is why we sing of the cross. We do not serve a Savior who got down from the cross. We do not serve a Savior who served himself. We do not serve a Savior who left us dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not serve a Savior who shows us up with a miraculous dismount from the cross. But instead, we serve a Savior who stayed and hung and gasped and bled and forgave Amen. so that he could perform the greater miracle. <clears throat> his blood, through the convicting power of his Holy Spirit, can be applied to your life and you too could be saved. Jesus surrendered it all for your salvation. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? If not, let today be the day that you look to the cross of Calvary and you see him stay in your place. Let today be the day that you see and truly believe. Would you bow with me? King Jesus, we confess this morning how easy it is to take our sin lightly because you have overcome them through your blood. We pray, God, for those who know you that we would afresh appreciate what you have accomplished for us by dying on the cross. And God, for those who have looked to Calvary and they've seen just another religious leader. They've seen just another religious teacher who did good things and was sadly mistaken at the end. God, that they would finally see that you could have gotten down from the cross, but you stayed for them. God, make today be the day that some who are far from God are brought near through your atoning sacrifice, through your shed blood. Let today be the day they turn from sin and find that you saved. We ask it in Jesus.